Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. In our last episode... Charlie murdered Tom Cripp Yates, one of his competitors in the liquor business, under the guise of assisting local law enforcement. Berger was not charged with Yates's murder, but was held in police custody for liquor violations. A Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deniel Chapter 3 Charlie and Beatrice Early July 1919 found barbershops and street corners everywhere buzzing with predictions and wagers about the forthcoming battle between heavyweight boxing champion Jess Willard and an up-and-coming slugger named Jack Dempsey. The fight for the championship was to be fought the 4th of July in Toledo, Ohio. Along with other gamblers from Harrisburg, Berger would be in attendance. In the first round alone, Willard was knocked down seven times, which was not all that surprising considering that the tall, 37-year-old boxer had failed to train for the much younger Dempsey. The inevitable knockout punch came in round three, and chances are Berger and buddies saw it all if not exactly at ringside, at least as part of the roaring crowd. However, the real excitement came when he and the others returned to Saline County. No sooner had Charlie arrived back at Ledford Saturday night, July 5th, than he was arrested by Saline County Sheriff John D. Cummins and his deputy W.O. Warren. The two had been tipped off about some whiskey that had been stored in a building belonging to Berger. Their search revealed nearly 600 half-pint bottles, not to mention many quart bottles. Bud Tavender was instructed to stand guard over the booze until Sunday morning. In the meantime, Berger and his faithful bartender John Bard were taken to the Saline County Jail in Harrisburg. Upon the filing of the necessary bond, Berger was released, while Bard remained behind bars a while longer. The case dragged on until November, when Berger was fined $100 on each of the three counts and sentenced to 30 days in jail. It appears that the jail sentence was suspended. That raid was only the beginning of Berger's woes. On July 7, 1919, a trunk marked Glassware arrived at the express office in El Dorado. That the trunk was addressed to Charles Berger was of little concern, but that it had also been sent from East St. Louis by Charles Berger did seem a little odd to the express agent. Odder still were the flies buzzing about the container, as well as a certain aroma emanating from it. Clearly, this was a matter for the law officers. An unnamed reporter for the Daily Register left us this thoughtful account. When Berger called at the office yesterday and asked about the trunk, the express agent had already suspicioned what it contained and had notified the police. Policeman Lamb was in the office when Berger called, and when he saw the police, he remarked that he would get a dray and call for it and he did not return. They did not count it or disturb it, but are of the opinion that it contains about 72 quarts. 
The sheriff was notified, but owing to the nudists and unfamiliarity of the new search and seizure laws, and the fact that the booze was not yet in Berger's possession, they did not seize it, but are guarding it until the attorney general advises them what to do. As it turned out, the true count was 78 quarts, each of which the court ordered Sheriff Cummins to pour into the water sewer located on the southeast corner of Harrisburg Square on the last day of July. Many years later, old-timers would wistfully recall how the whiskey aroma hung around for days. On Thursday, July 24th, the fairground at Shawneetown was the site of one of the, the best, best ever, ever horse races witnessed in southern Illinois. Van Dillen succeeded in giving the dust to the field, beating the favorite H.M. Considerable money changed hands. Some of that money, no doubt, found or fled Berger's pockets. But that day provided Berger more drama than any celebrated horse race, in that he was charged with contributing to the delinquency of two sisters from Carrier Mills. One was 16, the other was 14. The two girls had been missing since Wednesday night, prompting their mother to contact Mrs. McCreary, the juvenile officer. Somehow, a car was located, and together the two women journeyed to the Shawneetown Fairground, where rumor had it that Berger and the girls might be found. All missing parties were located, along with at least two others who seemed to be along for the ride. What had at first appeared to be a criminal act of the worst sort, now began to look more like a foolish jaunt, but the sisters were handed over to the custody of their mother and a warrant was served. The next day, Sheriff Cummins arrested Berger and placed him under a $1,000 bond, which he promptly paid. Later that year, all charges would be dropped at the request of the girl's mother, leaving the entire matter to be quickly overshadowed by other, more dramatic episodes in Berger's criminal career. But a certain detail is worth noting. One of Charlie's more mature companions that Thursday at the Shawneetown Fairground was 18-year-old Beatrice Bainbridge, the woman he would later marry. Nearly 60 years later, I would meet Beatrice and find her to be a grandmotherly, down-to-earth old lady. For my sake, she tried to recall a past she had spent decades trying to suppress, and for that I am grateful. She was quick to admit that her years with Berger had a dreamlike quality about them. Much of what she was able to remember was painful. He would tell me anything. And no doubt he did. So, this is her story. Not every detail adheres to the facts as we know them. For instance, she recalled being married in Clayton, Missouri, shortly after the incident in Shawneetown. The actual marriage certificate is dated March 1921. Perhaps her memory played a trick here, yet from other anecdotes she shared, it is evident she and Berger were together long before the official marriage date. Is it possible Charlie arranged a sham wedding that was convincing enough to fool even the quote-unquote bride? Only he could have gotten away with the deception. It is a matter of record that Edna is listed as his wife in the 1910 census, which was compiled three years before they were officially wed. Illusion for illusion's sake was an ideal in the pursuit of which Berger took considerable pride. In Harrisburg, Illinois, that summer of 1919, few business establishments were more popular than the Busy Bee Candy Kitchen, located near the southwest corner of the square. That day, two girls sat at one of the tables in the confectionery. One wore a homemade hat, 
a quote, most gorgeous thing, adorned with a streamer of blue and pink ribbon that hung down her back. Beatrice Bainbridge was proud of that hat. Bessie, her more fashionably dressed friend, had an admirer who, at that moment, was standing behind the two girls talking to a darkly handsome man of less than average height. During a pause in their conversation, the stranger reached over and cut the ribbon streamer from Beatrice's hat. It was on November 9, 1976, nearly 60 years after the ribbon-cutting event, that I interviewed Beatrice Bainbridge, whom I will hereafter refer to as Beatrice. For the purposes of privacy, even after 60 years had passed, I agreed to use only her maiden name. It insulted me when he cut the streamer, she said, and he laughed a happy guttural laugh. As though his audacity had entitled him to a proper introduction, the man sat down, apologized, and told her that his name was Jack Diamond and that he was a jewelry salesman from Chicago. As for the ribbon-cutting, he offered an apology but undercut it by insisting that her beauty had so befogged his senses that he had had no other choice. Because she did not know him from a sack of rabbits, the recipient of this adulation had no reason to doubt the stranger's word. The next Sunday afternoon, Beatrice was allowed uptown only on Sunday afternoons, the two couples went for a drive in the country. At Ingram Hill Cemetery, southeast of town, the car came to a stop, and the other couple quickly got out of the car and disappeared among the tombstones, leaving Beatrice alone with her admirer, who seemed once again to be laughing at her. That was the first time I ever was in a car with him, because a car ride to me then was like somebody giving me a Lincoln Continental now. Since she had to be home by five o'clock, the other couple was soon summoned for the short drive back to Harrisburg. Even though they were running late, the girls asked to be dropped off uptown, blocks beyond the prying eyes of Beatrice's parents, Bob and Mary Bainbridge. However, it happened that Beatrice's brother Earl saw them get out of the car and he lost no time in conveying this information to their father and mother. As Beatrice walked home, she met her mother where McKinley and Poplar Streets intersect on McKinley Hill. Mary Bainbridge, her German blood raised to a boiling point, whipped her errant daughter all the way to their home in West Harrisburg, and she didn't quit there. She whipped me from one end of the house to the other. Beatrice recalled with a laugh, although at the time it was anything but funny. It was not until she was confronted by her family that the young girl learned the reason for the stripes on her back. When Earl accused her of being in the company of Charlie Berger, quote, a bad character man from Ledford, she vigorously denied it, saying her date, if he could be called that, was Jack Diamond, a jewelry salesman from Chicago and a gentleman. For a moment, poor Earl could only shake his head. Her gentleman, he said, was a gambler and a bootlegger, a womanizer of no small reputation, and finally, a killer. Convinced by his argument, the parents forbade their daughter to ever see Berger again. When Bessie brought Charlie word of the whipping, he seemed dismayed and gave her a message in return. She came up the alley, through the backyard and got a hold of me. And the message? If she refused to see him elsewhere, Berger would come to her home. She agreed to a meeting just this once, although she was aware that if her parents found out, another, possibly more severe, whipping could be the result. 
Mom and Dad were gone someplace, and I sneaked down through the back alley to see what he wanted. He suggested that they take a ride, but she refused. When he mentioned the whipping, she downplayed the details, fearing what might happen to her brother Earl if his tattling became known to Berger. Don't send any notes, she insisted. And don't bother me no more, because I'm already in too much trouble. They won't even let me leave the house. Thinking the matter over for a moment, Berger replied, well, you won't have to take another whipping. Memory of that whipping had not faded when, some time later, Bessie asked Beatrice if she would accompany her and her beau and some other young people to the Shawnee Town Fair to see some of the horse races and, in general, to partake of such festivities as there were. No, came the reply. I'll get killed if they find out I'm gone. Not only would they be back by five o'clock, Bessie argued, but their very absence would go unnoticed. Besides, the excitement would do her good. Expecting nothing more than an afternoon's diversion, Beatrice Pearl Bainbridge agreed to go along. Waiting for them at the fairground was the handsome fellow who had caused all the trouble. He appeared and walked around the fairground there, she recalled. How fresh. She thought him at one point for brushing the dust from her white, homemade dress. That was all. He never even put his arm around me. That afternoon was still in its prime when juvenile officer McCreary arrived with the disheartening news that the woman accompanying her was charging Berger with contributing to the delinquency of her two young daughters. That story has been told. For her part, Beatrice forgot pertinent details of the incident, but did recall how the subsequent discord and confusion prompted Charlie to drive to Missouri and to take her along. Her life would be changed forever. He took me on to Clayton, Missouri. I was too dumb to ask him why he was going in there, she said, referring to the Office of the Justice of the Peace in the St. Louis County Courthouse. He told me to sign my name, and I asked him what for. He said we were getting married. I started to cry. I wanted to go home. Instead of taking Beatrice back to Harrisburg, Berger took her to the home of his sister, Rachel Shomsky, in St. Louis. Beatrice realized that Ray, as Rachel was called, was not pleased with her brother's choice in a wife. She raised Cain with him for marrying me. Ray had in mind a Jewish girl from the city, certainly not an underage Gentile who spoke with a strong Southern Illinois accent. When Beatrice offered to help with the dishes after supper, she was coldly told that would not be necessary. Much of the conversation that night went past the new bride, as it was in Yiddish. What happened next, she remembered clearly. We went to the American Annex Hotel and I wouldn't undress to go to bed. Charlie threatened to throw me in the bathtub of water if I didn't get undressed. And when I said, you wouldn't dare, he did. He threw me in, clothes, hats, shoes and all. I was wearing a homemade dress, homemade underwear, you can imagine. The grapes of wrath I was. The bridegroom spent the night at his sister's home, leaving Beatrice back at the hotel to ponder the turn her life had taken in the past few hours. I just sat there in the room looking out the window with my clothes on. I was afraid to go to bed or anything. He had said when he left, Now I'm going over to Ray's. Don't open this door for nobody. I'll call you. With such an inauspicious beginning, the honeymoon improved very little during their several days' stay in St. Louis. He did buy her some clothes, and every night he would stop by to take her to a restaurant and a movie. Once, they even attended a burlesque show. We walked into this place there and I didn't want to sit down because they were exposing themselves and I thought it was terrible. And Charlie said he shouldn't have brought me there, that he thought it was a movie house, but he could have told me anything. 
Her husband was also thoughtful enough to stop by a couple of times a day. One day, to relieve the boredom, he suggested that she might like to ride the streetcar, boarding it there at the hotel. After some protests on her part and his scoffing at her fears, Beatrice finally stepped aboard. If you get lost, he said, look up and see Buster Brown. Then you'll know you're at the American Annex Hotel. Most of the day she rode that streetcar, but instead of enjoying the sights, she was constantly on the watch for a sign of Buster and his faithful dog, Taj. Finally, I asked the streetcar conductor, and I guess he wondered what I was doing on that streetcar all the time. I was sick to my stomach. Amid this series of uncomfortable surprises, the young bride soon realized that she was now the stepmother of Berger's young daughter, Minnie. Fond though he was of the child, Berger could no longer abide the mother, his former sweetheart, Winnie Mofield. Listening to him rant about Winnie's failures as a mother, Beatrice began to realize that Charlie had married her primarily because he wanted someone to help raise his daughter. This, in time, she would do. Back in Saline County at last, the newlyweds stopped at Charlie's place in Ledford. Taking Minnie from the housekeeper who had cared for the little girl while Charlie was away in St. Louis getting married again, they drove to a hotel in El Dorado. They lived there only a short time before moving to a small apartment above the Busy Bee Candy Kitchen in Harrisburg. Next time, the guilty party was loading the containers when Berger stood up, pistol in hand, and said, Don't run! Quickly setting the bottles down, the thief owned up to the stealing and waited to hear the consequences. That concludes another episode of Blanket Fort Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and online at BlanketFortRadioTheater.com to learn more about this project. Build your own Blanket Fort and tell a story.